0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, world. This is the Global Media and Communication podcast series. I am Aswin Punathambhikar, the director of the Center for Advanced Research in Global Communication.
2: This is Jing Wang, the senior research
1: manager at CART. Our podcast is part of a multimodal project powered by CARG, here at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. At CARG, we produce and promote critical, interdisciplinary, and multimodal research on global media and communication. We aim to bridge academic scholarship and public life, bringing the very best scholarship to bear on enduring global questions and pressing contemporary issues.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Global Media and Communication podcast series. My name is Yuval Katz and I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Advanced Research in Global Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. I am delighted to have Professor Herman Wasserman from the University of Cape Town with us today. His book, The Ethics of Engagement, Media, Conflict and Democracy in Africa, was published in 2021 by Oxford University Press. Hello, Professor Wasserman, and welcome to the show. Just to start us off, can you please introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: Hello, and thank you very much for this invitation. It's good to be here. Uh, my name is Herman Wasserman. I am Professor of Media Studies at the University of Cape Town in South
2: Africa. All right. Thank you. Uh, so let's just dive into the book. Uh, as a way of introduction, can you tell us a little bit about the history of this book? Have you, uh, you've written a lot about media and social movements in Africa in the past. How would you situate this book within the trajectory of your work?
1: Yes, I think this book, for me, brings together different strands of my research. Um, on the one hand, as you've uh, mentioned, uh, media and social movements, media and activism, uh, issues around conflict, but also um, issues around media ethics and um, normative frameworks. So um, the the book, I think, wants to take media and conflict and media and social movements in um, and, and, and on the continent as a starting point, to make broader arguments around um, media ethical frameworks um, and its appropriateness for the African context. Uh, it, it, its immediate, um, I think, impetus was a, a project that I was involved with, um, Media Conflict and Democracy Project in Transitional um, Democracies or New Democracies, uh, that was led by Katrin Voltmer. Um, this book does not draw so much on that specific empirical data, but it uh, draws on some of the arguments and some of the debates that we've um, had in that project. So that was really the stimulus also for this book. And then I tried to build on that.
2: Can you tell us a little bit more about that project? So what, what, what did you do in that project? What, what data were you collecting uh, and how that created the impetus to, to write this book?
1: Yeah, so that book um, or that project um, with uh, Katrin wolfner and colleagues um, was uh, an international project that investigated the role of media in conflicts that accompany and follow transitions from authoritarian rule to more democratic forms of government. Um, and we l- looked at um, four countries, Egypt, Kenya, South Africa. These are sort of African countries and then also Serbia as a um, European example. And um, so this was a sort of a, a large comparative project, um, and that again also built on a previous research that I have done with Katrine um, around uh, issues of new democracies um, and transitions, and how media helps shape those transitions, but also in turn are shaped themselves by those democratic transitions.
2: Okay. Very interesting. Thank you. So the the book is written in a very specific historical moment and context, the fast democratization of many nations in sub-Saharan Africa in the 1990s and the relapse of some of these nations into authoritarianism uh, in subsequent years. Can you speak a little bit about this particular context or put differently, why was it crucial for you to write about the triad of democratization, conflict and media in Africa at this particular moment? Of course, I think, you know,
1: there are constantly different moments upon which one could concentrate. And um, I think at this point what I wanted to look at and, and wanted to maybe emphasize is the the fact that uh, democratization on the continent often takes sort of the shape of ebbs and flows. So it was really a, a way of also of, of writing against the notion of a teleological um, idea of democracy, that you have authoritarianism uh, then there is this sort of uh, liberal awakening, this third wave of democracy that occurred across the, um, the continent and elsewhere. And then, you know, miraculously, democracy arrives. We often hear that um, discourse in South Africa. We also we often speak about the miracle of 1994, for instance. You know, that there wasn't uh, a civil war, etc. And and that idea of um, authoritarianism that fits onto a neat line and a teleological line is something that I wanted to problematize. And so that's partly the reason why I also looked at um, these sort of lapses back into authoritarianism or um, authoritarian tendencies in the African context. I think, of course, that what we saw um, in the African context was in, in, in some ways maybe a harbinger for what then occurred Uh, More recently, elsewhere in the world, I think we see, uh, you know, um, elsewhere in the world also sort of more returns to more authoritarian um, discourses, more populist politics. And I don't want to necessarily um, draw too straight a line between these different contexts. Uh, Even within the African context, there's lots of lots of differences. Um, But I think uh, this idea that there's a democracy, even established democracies, um, that fit on a, a line and that never they will return to some sort of authoritarian context, I think is something that we have to guard against in our analysis. So it's a long answer, I think, but I mean, that's why I, I want to focus on this, this specific moment.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, I think this is a crucial intervention and, and it's important for all of us to think about these things, especially in this moment of populism and, author- and authoritarianism across the world. And uh, this is also some, some things that I'm seeing in my research when I'm looking at Israel-Palestine, but also in Hungary, in the US. And it's, it's really interesting and important, I feel, to think about these things comparatively. And I think this kind of moves us very naturally to the next question that your book focuses on English-speaking sub-Saharan African nations and not individual nations uh, in the continent like South Africa or Kenya, which you've written on extensively. And why did you choose this regional framework? Why is this regional framework helpful or useful? Uh, As you mentioned throughout the book, one of the challenges with many projects discussing politics in Africa is the fear of kind of reinforcing the stereotype of the miserable, violent continent. Uh, and it, which is the, the way it is often seen uh, in the eyes of Western uh, news consumers. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering, th- don't you feel like that you m- might run the risk of playing into this stereotype by losing the nuance of the politics of a single nation? Uh, and what, what, what kind of strategies do you employ to push back on these stereotypes uh, of Africa throughout the book? And, and again, why why was this kind of regional focus meaningful and useful in the, in this project?
1: Yes, I think you you touch on really valid points, and that is um, that, well, firstly, let me say it's partly um, a a convenience in the sense that, you know, my work is um, largely focused on the anglophone sphere. Um, I know that most of the production, I think uh, research production, about the continent in the media unfortunately seems to be on on Anglophone Africa. There's actually comparatively little on Francophone and certainly less on Lusophone Africa. And that that has remained a gap for many years and something that I think and hope um, uh, colleagues that work on Francophone Africa would also contribute more uh, and that there's also maybe a bit more um, uh, recognition uh, on the part of Anglophone African researchers um, of what's happening in Francophone. So I think there's also, there is a big ignorance among us that that work in anglophone africa so that's the first limitation that i will i would mention i would say that there is however some logic in in looking at um anglophone countries in the sense that they share a common experience of uh, british colonialism and so that legacy of british colonialism has also shaped the legacy of the media uh, and and often their uh, you know ethical normative frameworks that um, have often been drawn from those contexts um their media training programs, et cetera. So I think there is a logic in, in looking at them. But the book doesn't attempt a, a sort of strict comparative um, project. I mean, it, it, it's really taking examples from these contexts uh, to make a, a, a broader argument. Um, but you're completely right that there is the danger of um, saying, um, you know, this is representative or creating the impression that this is representative, which was not what I wanted to do um and there is uh there is certainly the need to for, for more nuance um, and, and and to to always make the point that Africa is a huge continent with uh, many differences um many different countries different media systems etc
2: yeah I'm wondering even though as you mentioned you use examples to illustrate your points and you really don't don't talk comparatively, but I'm wondering throughout your research, have you seen a type of flow between different nations uh, that that has contributed to a process of democratization or the, the way that meat or influence the way that media contributes to process of democratization? Uh, and do you have any, any kind of example uh, in mind that kind of reflects this kind of regional flow within uh, Anglophone Africa? Um, yes, I think... <laughs>
1: South Africa and Kenya, for instance, are two examples. I mean, they're also examples that uh, are countries that I happen to have studied and worked on uh, more than some others. Uh, I think what what makes them both sort of mutually maybe reinforcing is that ba- both of them have um, quite strong um, democratic um, systems. They have um, very vibrant media, uh, technologically quite advanced media systems. So, in that sense. Um, they're, and also um, uh, quite active uh, online uh, citizens, uh, quite an active political discourse online in Kenya and South Africa. So those sort of comparisons um, or, or um, similarities, I think, um, make them good examples to, to, to group together when you, we want to look at how media use and, and engaging with the media um, take place in African democracies. Um, there, of course, in other countries like Zimbabwe, um, which is very close to south Africa geographically speaking uh, and, and within the southern um, uh, southern region um, but that it has a very different sort of political uh, system and media system and and um, has suffered more from uh, sort of repressive
2: um, political uh, regimes uh, yeah so I want to move from here to one of what I think is one of the most interesting interventions, theoretical interventions that you're making in the book, and which is kind of counterintuitive, and I would be very glad to if we can kind of unpack it and, and talk about it a little bit. So, one of the central interventions that you make on the book is reconfiguring conflict as constructive rather than necessarily destructive force in processes of democratization. And you draw from uh, Chantal Mouffe's idea of agonistic democracy uh, to make this point and criticize the Habermasian perception of a public sphere, arguing against this kind of totalizing logic or the kind of this idea that we need to reach a consensus as a pathway uh, for a thriving democracy. Uh, So can you break break down these ideas a little bit for our listeners? Uh, What is agonistic democracy? Uh, What is the difference between uh, agonism and antagonism according to MOEF? And how do you understand it? And how do you implement that in your work? And how how does agonism challenge Western perception of what democracy should do as advanced by Habermas and others? And can you give us some examples from your research on media in Africa that illustrate how agonism is practiced?
1: Okay, um, so th- obviously these are really complex ideas and, and I'm, I'm, Chantal Mouffe's work is, is also you know, very challenging and com- um, complex and very insightful. So I, I'm not going to try and summarize her arguments, um, but maybe t- in the way that I understand its, its applicability to this context um, is also partly an attempt, and why I draw on that is partly, again, an attempt to write back an, an, against the idea, the teleological narrative, Um, in which uh, African democracies and African media's role in democracies are often assessed in the sense that you have uh, typically the picture is there's a conflict, there's a civil war or something, Um, there's polarization, then there's a movement towards democratization, media liberalization in the 90s, etc., and then again you have... Uh, a more or less a consensual democracy where the, where conflict then is largely absent, where you have peaceful elections and so on. So, very much it's a procedural idea also of democracy in the media. Whereas I think Chantal Mouffe's work um, helps us to understand conflict as something that is always inherently there, in um, that. You of course can have um, violent conflicts that nobody wants and that we would try to avoid. But I think the idea is that if you if you see conflict as a as a sort of characteristic of uh, a healthy uh, democracy, if that is harnessed correctly and if it is managed correctly, uh, that it, then it can be productive. So the the idea between I mean the difference between a, a, um, antagonism and agonism basically is that. Um, the the terms of engagement you know what are the what are the terms uh, through which people engage different parties different movements different political stakeholders one is I mean the idea of antagonism where um, you know people engage as enemies right so um, they they try to uh, really destroy each other it's it's a zero sum game it's it's I win or you win whereas the idea of agonism is more of an adversarial one where people have strong differences of opinion um, also mediated uh, through through journalism and other forms of media, but that it is that there is also a focus on on how people can try and solve that, how those conflicts can um, lead to to outcomes that are hopefully mutually um, acceptable. And in that sense, I think you know eventually in the book I'd, I I move towards a sort of ethical framework of listening, which in some ways I think also resonate with more um, recent. Um, movements such as constructive journalism or solutions journalism with ideas that that journalism's role is also not to merely pit these enemies against each other and and see politics as a sort of boxing match uh, where one person will win, one competitor will, will be victorious but where um, politics is rather a sort of really robust uh, conversation and an argument, but where people have the same common goal, um, and, and that is flourishing of society. Um, so I think it's, 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 a, it's a different perspective of, of uh, looking at it. And where it, can, where it, I think, comes up against the Habermasian ideal is that, and, and maybe some examples from the South African context is, um, you know the the idea that um, protest and, and social activism is uh, is a sign that democracy is not working. You know we have um, we've had in, in, in the post nineteen uh, ninety four decades we have had regular protests by citizens, and sometimes they, they have been met with um, uh, repression from government or uh, violent responses. But the fact that they are there, the fact that people feel they can protest. Um, Says something about you know their engagement, and um, and then you know the question sometimes arises: Why then isn't there a sort of more rational debate about this? Why why isn't there sort of an exchange of opinions in the media? Why do people go into the streets and barricade streets uh, and burn things? And that sometimes I think points to a uh, a failure of the media in the sense that um, people are playing into the the media paradigm of protest. Um, that, that media tend to highlight those sort of ways of political engagement because um, they they lack the imagination of, of engaging in, in, in other ways, of listening more closely, of telling stories differently, etc. Um, and and then often the demand is made that people should not engage in those sort of, um, let's say, spectacular forms of protest or when there's a student movement, the students should rather sit down and talk rather than, um, you know, uh, blockade campus so that teaching cannot happen. The point is that I think that all all those sort of arguments come from a Habermasian idea of rationality as the, the cornerstone of democracy. Whereas um, I think people like Susan Bickford and others that I mentioned in, in my work on listening have actually told us that or taught us that when people feel strongly about something, they get emotional. Um, and emotions are, are, are valid ways of engaging politically. In fact, they are often uh, signs that people are really invested in, in a political project. When they get emotional, when they when they protest, when they um, when they shout and when they scream and when they you know block roads, um, and and we should try and, and use that as a as a as a trigger to to engage with people and to listen to people and and for the media to um, try and imagine what what the solutions might be to the, the, the problem rather than again pitting this as, a, as, as two um, camps in a, in a sort of boxing match and that only one of them can win. So I mean again I mean, it's, it's a way I think of trying to write back to that idea also of, of that normative vision of African democracies also uh, often as um, you know there there's a conflict, then there's a political process, a rational process, elections, multi-party democracy and then there's peace. Um, that is a sort of teleological uh, narrative that I think is not really helpful in helping
2: us understand um, these sort of. um yeah, so so I'm wondering if if we're thinking about that in the, in the context of what you just described the the importance of emotion and, in, and being emotionally invested. And I, I want to shift gears maybe a little bit to think about the media, which is, you know, the focus of your book. So how do you, how do you envision the media covering emotions uh, as opposed to, you know, only talking about rational debate in the Habermasian sense? Uh, what, what is the role of media of, you know, making sure that this type of discourse is also included and, and is seen as a part of nation building or democrat, democratizing the nation and so on?
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, it's it's much easier to think of these things in abstract terms than actually looking at them in practice, and that's the big challenge, I think, for us as researchers, is to find practical ways um, and to suggest practical ways for journalists to do this. Um, but I think one way of doing this is for for journalists really to commit to being surprised, to commit to to having their frameworks upended, um, and and. Also, then um, the, practically, that means that you also, uh, I think, um, hand over almost the the, the 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 microphone or the the, the whatever means of journalistic production. Uh, to people outside of the newsroom, I think often journalists um, frame a story in in a certain way. They already have an idea of who the actors are, who the opponents are, what the issues are, and then they just fill in the blanks. You know, they they just um, sort of coloring through within the sort of borders that they've already drawn. Whereas I think the the, the commitment to listening um, for journalists would mean that you should be able to to commit to a a uh, type of journalism that, that might mean that your those boundaries will be redrawn, that your picture of the world might be radically changed. Um, and, you know, that, in other words, that if you really listen to the, the, the actors in these conflicts, Um, that you might be surprised. Um, And and so it's also a question of of imagination. It is really a question of imagining yourself in the position of somebody else. I think that the problem in in African context, and specifically I talk about my own one in South Africa, is that they're often marked by um, severe inequalities, social and economic inequalities, apart from political polarizations. So we have political polarizations that often map onto ethnicities and, and certain ethnic histories, that were also historically exploited by colonialism. So it's a complex picture. But I think just in terms of the economics of the media, the political economy of the media, is that these media in Africa often operate in highly unequal societies. So there's a conflation of journalists that conflate uh, their audience, their, their, their market, if you want to use that word, and the public at large. So they, they, they tend to view politics, they tend to write politics um, and construct that narrative from the point of view of social elites, people that can access the media, people that have a certain narrative. Uh, and in that narrative, then all others become sort of bit players. They become almost like caricatures of, of some sort of story. Um, and the challenge then I think for journalists is really to actively go be across those borders. And sometimes those borders are drawn by ethnicity, by language, by, um, by poverty, um, and, and and really to to try and 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 open up and, and and create dialogue and again it's not the sort of facile idea of dialogue it's just people sitting together and, and saying things things that they've been saying all along and just saying that louder and louder and the idea is really to try and and, and, and redraw and rewrite that that narrative um, and in in the African context or in context of high inequality that that would mean then I think um, going beyond those boundaries of your specific market, of your specific audience, um and, and going to listen to people that might not naturally form part of your own sphere of influence, um, your own sources.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that that's really interesting. And I and I'm wondering, because newspapers and news organizations are very much institutionalized and as you said, they're very much a part of, you know, the social elites, uh do you find that uh, news organizations, institutionalized news organizations are able to be agile enough or flexible enough to incorporate these new voices or what kind of journalistic practices or institutional uh, processes have to take place in order to be able to include these new voices? Or should we pay more attention to maybe grassroots organizations, citizen journalists? Uh, what, so I'm, I'm wondering, like, institutionally, is that is that possible? Be- because news organizations often tend to be very elitistic.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're you're entirely right, and I think all of these debates that we're having, or these discussions that we're having, occur at a time when journalism is under severe pressure globally. Um, journalists, uh, I mean, newsrooms are being cut back. I mean, there's an uh, erosion of trust in journalism. Journalism is lost. It's, uh, it's sort of discursive um, power also in societies. Um, and, and, and so, journalists, um, it's, it's very difficult for journalists to invest or media organizations to invest in long term investigative journalism or embedded journalism in communities. Um, and and so, unfortunately, you know, the, the political economy of of journalism, certainly in our country and elsewhere in Africa as well, um, you know, militate against these sort of more creative and long term, imaginative ways of doing journalism. But I think for journalism to regain that trust and for journalism really to make a difference and to to remain relevant, it would have to happen. It would have to, the Journalists will have to reimagine ways in which they work. Um, And I think your your suggestion about um, civil society and and activists, I think that is a very useful one because that can lead to partnerships and collaborations that um, just in terms of resources, you pool resources and you draw from other um, uh, voices and other um, sources of of information and you have ears on the ground. But at the same time, I think it will also help to reestablish more trust in journalism because, uh, now it's not only the social elites in their offices uh, that that write journalism, but also people that are actually on the ground and embedded in the ground. So to give you a, an example, for instance, around um, activism and protest in South Africa, I think I mentioned this in the book. Um, often, you know, there's this almost daily um, protest somewhere uh, around something like what's been dubbed service delivery, which means that people demand water or sanitation or Housing, all of these things that the the democratic government has failed to provide to to people. And then, um, you know, when when that protest happens, um, there's maybe a section of a a big road that is barricaded, people are, you know, burning tires and so on. Uh, It has become so commonplace then for journalists just to say, on the radio, for instance, avoid this road from this point to that point because there's a protest. If you want to go to work in the city, rather take this route, which tells you that the perspective on protest is that of a middle-class person wanting to get to the office and wanting to know what the traffic is going to be like. Uh, Not the, the question of, you know, here we have a community. This is what the community is unhappy about. This is how long the community has been struggling to get water. This is how it affects their children, their health, etc. Um, th- those conversations only often enter journalism when it, it affects the politics in parliament or voting behavior, etc. So again, a very sort of, uh, I think, a sort of rationalized, maybe elitist way of thinking about politics as something that happens in, in parliament, at the, at the ele- electoral process, at the ballot box, and, and not something that happens in the streets um, you know, and, and happens in communities. And that again, I think, is the, the, the Habermasian idea of thinking about democracy. And certainly in, in the African context, where there's so much civil society, NGO, international funding going towards safeguarding things like elections and, and safeguarding things like multi-party democracy, which of course are all well and fine. But that means that you know um, journalism and journalism's contribution to democracy is seen in a very narrow way of of safeguarding those procedural aspects and those formal aspects, and not necessarily um, at at voice, at listening, at um, at communities and involving communities in journalistic production. Um, So I think there has to be a paradigm shift, um, uh, and that's not only going to be good for democracy, but also good for journalism.
2: Yeah, so this is this is fascinating, and I think that you know what, what you're kind of touching upon, uh, which is something that you also discuss in the book. Again, I think really like this example that you presented about you know the the middle class person who's trying to to get to their office, and you know the the reports on the radio just tell them how to avoid the protests and not really you know connecting with them or understanding uh, you know communities needs. And um, so if you if we do have journalists who are invested in talking about these things. And that kind of disrupts what, what we, we often see as the, the ideals of, uh, you know, journalistic professionalism, right? So the, this, this sense of, you know, trying to be objective. Uh, if you have journalists who are, and you, and you, and you discuss that in your book, uh, if you have journalists who are coming from these communities that don't have access to, to water, for example, they cannot be objective. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about you know these values, which are very often kind of Western values of what journalism should be, and how what you see in your research kind of disrupts that or challenges that?
1: Right. Yeah, and I think here again, the the um, what is important to think about is how journalists are trained and and educated, and what the sort of normative frameworks are where they come from, often inherited from the West and in in the context that I write about, often from um, sort of Anglo-American sort of frameworks. Um, And and in those frameworks, I think something like objectivity, neutrality, balance, um, uh, professionalism, you know, those sort of values are often prized and and reiterated the sort of training programs that are funded by international organizations for african journalists often reinforce those ideas Um, and so the idea of of being emotionally invested of being um angry about things about you know those are sort of values that are not necessarily often um, associated with with journalism so that's the one thing i think that um that uh, gives us sort of sometimes a sort of almost like cold view of 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 what's happening in communities. It's a sort of very distant, um, objective way, um, which, again, I think feeds into that idea of there are different stakeholders battling it out in a boxing ring. Um, Somebody's going to win, you know, and and we are the spectators. We, on the journalists, we do the sort of match report in a way. Uh, So that's, I think, um, one of the issues. The other issue is that of of professionalism and, you know, um, People have written about this, um, more people like Bobby Zelizer at your school, for instance, and others have, have, have written about the idea of um, the, the problem with professionalism as, as reinforcing a gap between um, social elites and, and communities. And I think that sort of gap is even more pronounced in, in highly unequal uh, settings like South Africa and, and other places in, on the continent, uh, where journalists are um, form of part of a social elite, trained in a certain way. Um, having certain, um, uh, you know, lifestyle, maybe certain political agendas, um, and that maybe struggle, even if they want to, and this is not that they are necessarily want to be aloof or distance, but this struggle to to imagine themselves in in, in the in the feet in the shoes of, of of other people. So I think that the idea of, of professionalism is not necessarily a very helpful one. Uh, when it comes to, to trying to do dif- journalism differently. Um, I think, of course, when we t- talk about professional values like truth-telling, um, uh, independence of, of vested interests and so on, then it is really important. And again, uh, in the current context of, of disinformation and so on, those sort of values are important. But I think professionalism as a as a, as a social status, as a social identity, is not necessarily very helpful. And I think, um, again, the journalism as a set of practices um, and, and, and professionalism as a set of practices can be helpful. But when it becomes a social identity that, that, that actually counters people's engagement with, with other voices and, and other communities, I think it can become an obstacle.
0: slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I think this lends us very naturally into I think and you kind of mentioned that already in our conversation, this idea of listening and being more attuned to what the public needs and being more connected with with local communities. So can you kind of break it break this down for us and maybe give us some examples of what that looks like. What what, what does it mean for a journalist to to listen to a community, to be more connected, to be more relevant and, and to serve a community? I
1: mean, there are some examples and some of these examples that that I mentioned in the book, go back to maybe some of the traditions of even something like public journalism, or civic journalism in the U.S., those ideas of town hall meetings where people come and and speak and and listen. And and that certainly is one sort of listening um, practice where journalists can um, call meetings uh, and and just go and listen to what communities have to say. Um, But I think those are sort of often... maybe uh, difficult to arrange, not always necessarily successful. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I think um, what is probably going to be more helpful is, um, again, if we go back to this idea of collaboration, of journalism as a set of collaborative practices, um, where, where journalists see themselves as, as curators, maybe as, as um, change makers, as facilitators, but not necessarily as the only voices. And that idea of um, giving voice to the voiceless, I think, is sometimes, um, it, might, it might be well-intentioned, but it, again, um, can reinforce that idea of we are the ones that that are in a position, we, journalists, are in a position to give voice to others. People have voice. The poor have voice. Um, marginalized have voice. The question is, does somebody listen to them? Do, do, are these voices being heard? Um, and in that sense, I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's going to take a, a sort of Imaginative t- is going to need an, an imaginative turn on the p- on the part of journalists to say that we we are not able we we are limited in the way that we uh, are maybe positioned socially that the, the way that our resources the resources that we have and that we have to collaborate with others and that we have to um, bring in activists collaborate uh, collaborate maybe with social um, movements and civil society. And that doesn't mean that yeah, they, they should be uncritical. I mean, I think they they need to be. Um, they still need to interrogate critically what these activists and these movements are doing. But as a way of of getting um, more stories and more voices and more narratives into into this sort of agonistic sphere, um, I think it, it would need uh, breaking down those walls, those sort of um, walls between. Uh, journalists' offices, um, you know, big media institutions, and and what's happening on the ground in communities um, and in local struggles.
2: Yeah, so thank you. And I think that, so one of the other interesting things that you talk about, especially in relation to democratization and and conflict in in Africa, is this idea that journalists can also be a part of, of, you know, peaceful transformation. And you use this really interesting term of the sacredness of life as kind of a central ethical value that journalists should promote in order to promote peace. Can, can, so can you explain a little bit what that means and unpack what sacredness of life means and how it is being practiced by journalists or how it should be integrated into their professional practice?
1: Yeah, so so the, the, that notion of sacredness of life is actually um, the, the whole idea of a proto or something that has come out of um, our work on global media ethics, and I've worked with with um, people like Cliff Christians and, and Stephen Ward and others, um, in in this, trying to find a way in which um, media ethics can apply globally in, in a globalized um, media world. And and so what the the idea, and I think the idea of sacredness of life is a protonym is actually Cliff, Cliff Christians' idea. Um, and you know that is consists of ideas like uh, or, or, or three um, sub norms of of human dignity, truth telling, and and, and non Um So those are sort of values I think that are that we could say are universally true. I mean that that in most cultures, most um, contexts, uh, people value life and. And I think what if, if those are the sort of central ideas, um, so something like human dignity, for instance, um, if that is a central ethical norm for journalists, um, it would mean um, thinking about um, how to to treat people with that dignity, to give them the opportunity to speak, to listen to them, um, to also put um, those struggles of the poor, for instance on on the agenda. Um, to think about what um, the huge social inequality and poverty in in countries such as South Africa does to people's human dignity, and that that drives your journalistic practice. So, as an ethical norm, I think the idea of, of sacredness of life, um, and 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 also that, that also then consists of something like truth telling, um, and uh, I think those ideas can drive journalism in a way that really contributes to social change in ways that. Um, maybe is a bit more dynamic it's a bit more open-ended more participatory um, than the idea of a sort of just a sort of really rational almost sometimes a stenography um, of what happens in societies that that is not really that invested and committed to people's um, s- uh, sort of everyday lives um, and their and their human dignity so I think that, that's that's where that idea comes from um, and I'm trying to just trying to think about you know in my work how that idea what that means what that looks like in in a country such as South Africa and other countries on the continent that uh, where, where so many people are really poor and marginalized and um, on the fringes on the margins of of society and often out of earshot of journalists so if you think about something like sacredness of life or human dignity it would really mean for journalists to take um, people seriously that might not um, otherwise be heard and and, and might not otherwise form part
2: of, of media discourses, media narratives. Thank you. This this is really, really interesting, really important. And and I'm wondering if we can... So our conversation so far has been very theoretical, I feel, and and really, really fascinating. And I'm I'm trying to think a little bit more in kind of practical terms. So if we're thinking about journalists who want to do that work, who want to be more connected to communities and talk about impoverished communities and support them and so on, do you think that this is something that should happen kind of uh, bottom-up? So it means that, you know, We we need to, journalists should be invested in these things and just go to these communities? Or is that something that should happen institutionally? So editors uh, should dictate specific rules or should change the the norms institutionally within news organizations? So I'm wondering if that's kind of a top-down process or a bottom-up process or both. What do you think?
1: Mm. That's a good question. And again, I mean, I think you're completely right in the sense that these ideas are easier to think about in abstraction than when you think about that in practical terms. It often becomes very challenging, especially when um, when there's limited resources. Um, but I think that is one way uh, why this is important uh, or, you know, one way of addressing this is, is through diversity of newsrooms. And I think that is why um, it is important to appoint journalists that come from different communities. I mean, one of the... Um, i recently uh, well, not so recently a few years ago uh, one of my phd students yesentima way who uh, worked on on, on kenya um, and she's she's kenyan and she uh, looked at the role that um, ethnicity for instance played in newsrooms and how ethnicity often um, frames stories that people would uh, that journalists would uh, only report on their, you know, what happens in their own communities. And you can say the same thing about race, for instance, in the South African context, you know, uh, why it is important for newsrooms to be transformed. Um, And you can say the same about language and religion and and, and so on. Um, So I think once a newsroom is made up of people that have different perspectives and different backgrounds um, and different experiences, that already, I think, is a huge step towards, um, you know, uh, hopefully... Um, enabling journalists to listen better. So that's the thing as sort of I think it's sort of top-down thing that, that that can happen and that should happen. Um, you know other ways of doing this is, is, is maybe more a bottom-up thing is um, for more collaborative projects where um, where newspapers or news outlets can um, literally, Hand over the means of production, even temporarily, to to communities. So, so for instance, there is a, a, a big student protest movement that happened in, in it was called "Fees Must Fall" um, in, in 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 my country, in my city, in my university. In fact, uh, a few years ago, what one of the newspapers did is they they have these have these student activists guest edit an issue of the newspaper. You know, that's that's really literally handing over the the reins, the control um, to others. That's quite a radical step. Um, but you know the, those sort of collaborations um, can then from the bottom up help change things. Um, but you know they, and, and and through technology and through mobile phones that are really pervasive on the continent, there are all sorts of ways in which technology can also be harnessed to do this. Um, you know and I'm sure you know there's lots of uh, more creative ways of thinking about this, but I think the first step is really, through that commitment, um, and, and through that um, idea of thinking differently about what um, journalists' social identity is, um, and that journalists um, should also think of themselves as, as part of a, a broader network of, of um, uh, people involved in, in a broader conversation rather than as these sort of gatekeepers. Nico Carpentier, in fact, I think has written about this, and, and, and then he says, you know, journalists should be gate openers, not gatekeepers, and I think that's quite a, quite a useful metaphor. It's saying, you know, Traditionally, journalists have been thinking about their role as, as gatekeepers, as uh, deciding what story should go into the news and what should be kept out, what is news, what is news values. And in fact, um, they can turn that around by saying, let's open the gate, um, let's um, let's bring more voices in and, and let's lose control of the narrative, maybe. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I am a bit wary that all of this can lead to a sense that I'm, or maybe a misunderstanding that when I'm, Advocating is a sort of um, a sort of journalism that's not critical or that's not that um, does not play that monitorial watchdog role, and that's not what I mean at all. In fact, I think it's quite the opposite. Um, so I think in in authoritarian contexts, um, that watchdog role and that investigative role, that that critical role, is is incredibly important. But it can be done better if you involve more people, more eyes, more. Um, more people on the ground um, that can tell you you know how the government is failing in different communities um, how the police uh, maybe there's police brutality in 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 poorer areas that you don't see in in more affluent suburbs so these sort of practices can in fact i think strengthen that watchdog role can in fact broaden that monitorial um, outlook Um, so it's not a it's not a argument for a sort of soft touch um sort of touchy feely type of journalism in fact i think quite the opposite
2: yeah. no I, I really love this idea of uh, thinking about journalists as gate openers rather than gatekeepers uh, and be, being like a more more inclusive and um, I want to I, I'm, I'm wondering this is kind of partially because of the type of work that I do and um, we, we talk about media uh, and, we, and we kind of we usually we usually in our conversation here we talked about journalism uh, and the news media and I'm wondering if in your work uh, and in the, the African context, you're aware of other media forms like television dramas or autobiographical books or fan communities on social media or any any other types of media forms that can also help uh, drive forward processes of democratization and, and peace in conflicted communities. Have you encountered any or have you spent some time thinking about other media forms as well?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. And, and I think, here again, journalism, um, I see journalism as, as a set of practices and a set of values that... Um, it can be shared much more widely than just professional journalists in the in the in inverted commas you know um journalists that make a living out of of, of journalism um and and again you know other colleagues have uh, have written about this more extensively than i have but for instance in kenya um there's this a uh, big community of of twitter users um they, they even use the hashtag kot kenyans on twitter uh there's an Interesting case um, that I'm not going to go into in too much detail now. But years ago, when CNN reported on a visit of Barack Obama to, to Kenya, and um, you know, painted Kenya as a sort of hotbed of terrorism, um, that that community sort of sprang into action, and often through irony and humor and satire, uh, which are stocks in trade of of um, of publics in Africa for a long time that come goes back all the way to um colonialism and in, in, in ways in which colonialism was subverted through through jokes etc through those sort of means um, publics and, and 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 users of social media or people on mobile phones that that spread gossip and humor and and, and jokes um, can often contribute to a sort of conversation a democratic conversation that's much wider than sort of news media in the, in the traditional sense um, Documentary filmmaking as well um, has been really powerful in many um, areas of the continent, um, and and you know it has also has the the potential I think to to um, harness people's imagination. Uh, so yeah, I think all these 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 online communities, um, forms of humor and satire. Um, even through pop songs. My colleague Winston Mano has written an article um, a while back around how pop music in Zimbabwe has played the role of journalism, where uh, formal journalism was under pressure and um, people were making veiled criticisms against the government in, in, in pop songs, and lyrics. Uh, you know, so I think we, we do have to imagine journalism as as a set of practices and values that um, is much wider than, than conventional uh, news journalism. And again, uh, um, it, it creates opportunities for collaboration once those gates are
2: opened. Yeah, thank, thank you so much. Yeah, and, and you know, also for me, I, I see in my work on Israel Palestine that pop culture is becoming a really crucial space for. So re- rethinking the relationship between different communities uh, and reimagining social change. And I want to take a step back uh, as we kind of conclude our conversation uh, and kind of uh, keeping in mind our listeners, many of whom are you know early career scholars who are thinking about their first manuscripts and reading uh, reading your book. I think you did an excellent job kind of making very clear what is your intervention and also making sure that. Uh, you know, what you're writing about speaks to a very wide audience. So not strictly to people who are interested in, let's say, in democratization in the African context, but also thinking people are thinking about democratization more widely speaking in other political contexts or thinking about, you know, ethics of journalism and so on. So can you take, t- t- talk to us, tell us a little bit about, you know, when you construct your your argument, where, where, when you write, uh, what, what kind of uh, tactics do you employ Uh, in order order to make sure that, you know, your your arguments or your writing speaks to a a wide audience and that that your book can be marketable uh, to a wide audience and how that kind of configures into your conversation with publishers. If you can reflect a little bit about your writing process in in that regard, that would be wonderful.
1: Yeah, thank you. And thanks for the kind words. I think... um... Scholars from from the global south often have a more difficult task to uh, to make their voices heard in that sense, because um, you know I often use the example um, when I wrote a book on tabloids in South Africa tabloid journalism. Um, if if somebody wrote a book on tabloid journalism in in Britain, right, they can just call it tabloid journalism or digital journalism or whatever. But I always have to say tabloid journalism in South Africa or in Africa or in the global South. And then immediately you also run into those problems of now you're homogenizing, you're, you're constructing a monolith and so on. Um, but we are always, there's always the demand, you know, that that work in the global South is located and that, um, you know, almost the, the work elsewhere is almost locationless. Um, and of course that is Part of the work of decolonizing the field, you know that that I've also been involved with, and in some and others have been, have been trying to make those points that you know the knowledge production uh, often assumes a sort of universalism on the part of um, the global north, whereas in the global south we're always called upon to make that specificity. Um, so partly, I think one of the one of the things that I try to do in my writing, and um, I think that you have alluded to, and hopefully that's been successful, is that using specific contexts. Um, to, to enter broader debates. So for me, the, 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 the situation in South Africa and Kenya are, in, the, in this book, for instance, are entry points into broader discussions around media and democracy that hopefully will also resonate with um, other contexts where media are um, operating in, in context of populism or authoritarianism and so on. Without necessarily claiming, again, to uh, be universally applicable, but, but that, that you enter a broader conversation. And I think uh, uh, the same with ethics and so on, you know, that um, there's a danger, I think, for scholars in the global South to become so parochial and so uh, focused on their own context um, that it remains only relevant or only re-read um, by scholars that are already interested in those specific contexts. And it doesn't really speak back to the broader narratives and theories in the field. So there's the tendency, I think, for media theory to and communication theory more generally to be developed somewhere in the north and then applied in the south. And the south just provides the sort of examples and illustrations to prop up that theory. And I think the way to, to undo that and the way to, to, to turn that situation around is to really engage on a theoretical level um, from from Southern way viewpoints. and that's what I try to do with, with say, the idea of the ethics of listening, for instance, is try and engage with ethics theory, but do that using um, examples uh, from the South African um, and other contexts. So that would be my advice, I think for scholars in the global South is to not be apologetic about um, their experiences and try to limit it and, and try to be and, and think that you only have to speak about this in sort of very parochial terms, you know in, in area studies type of terms but really um, engage with with, um, media and communication scholarship on a theoretical level um, from um, the perspectives of lived experiences in the South, instead of constantly trying to apply theories that have been developed elsewhere uh, to your own context. And In that sense, I think in that way, you can also then not only hopefully contribute to the decolonization or de-westernization of the field, but you can also position your research in a way that is then um, that resonates with with debates elsewhere and that hopefully will be of interest to people even if they're not interested in your specific geographical context in the first
2: instance this is wonderful and i mean i think I, I, you almost kind of state kind of the, the mission statement that we have here in carg to talk about to think about media and communication beyond the global north um and I, I really love your idea of you know talking from the south uh, and almost not being apologetic uh, to to create this conversation and kind of create your own intervention and not all, always adhere to these kind of veteran theories uh, like the public sphere by habermas uh, that are kind of imposed on on you know other contexts uh, in the global in the global south uh, and so i'm wondering if if And again, because I'm kind of aware of our listeners, and many of us are writing about the Global South, if you have any other advice uh, to, to give to kind of young writers who are writing about the global south? How they, you know, c- can make their case, especially when communicating with publishers. And um, you, you mentioned this idea that you, we always have to co- to provide context, which is again something that really resonates I think with all of us. That if you write about the U.S., you don't have to provide any context, but if you write about, I don't know, India or Israel-Palestine or South Africa, you need to provide ample context. How how can you make yourself kind of appealing? Uh, uh, to, to publishers uh, and to make your your case compelling, if you have any advice based on your experience. Yeah,
1: I mean, for me, a lot of this has been in terms of personal relationships, you know, in the sense that um, it, it takes time, uh, but if you attend conferences and you attend workshops and you speak to people, I mean... It, my experience has really not been that that people are uninterested in the global south, and now I think also in, in in associations like the ICA and elsewhere, I mean there's a real imperative, a real effort also to to try and and, and be more inclusive. Yeah. Um, so I think if 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 junior scholars from the south. Um, just take that step and, and to engage uh, and, to, and to participate. I think they will find that there's a lot of goodwill and a lot of um, interest. In fact, mm-hmm. um, so my, my my suggestion would be really to to try and participate where you can and. Um, you know start small start by offering to write a book review you know um, for for a journal um, and and then have your readership in mind and so maybe there is a book on, on media in Africa for instance then and, and you want to write a, a review of that for journalism studies or whatever other major journal um, you know you write it in a way that that can resonate with the readers of that specific um, Uh, journal, but you also then start slowly by claiming your space and by by entering into the conversation. Um, And it is a long process. I mean, it's a difficult process. Um, And I think often um, the the cards are stacked against scholars in the South, uh, just in terms of, again, the political economy of knowledge production. It takes, it costs a lot of money to attend these conferences. Um, It's difficult, often just the practicalities of obtaining visas, all of these things that you know, often scholars in the global north never have to think about, it. Um, never have to think about a, a visa to, to 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 attend a conference, but we have to think about that six months before the conference. You have to start applying. You know, and and all of those things cost money. They cost time. So it is it is a hard and a very difficult way. Um, but I think it is important to to try and engage in those um, spaces. The other thing that I would say is is that increasingly we are seeing some of this happening in Africa, and, and I think. Uh, To build localized or regional networks of solidarity. So, for instance, we've had a few ICA in Africa conferences. We'll be hosting one again, uh, next year in, in, in Cape Town. Uh, the idea, hopefully, is that it will also be attended by scholars from the north uh, to come and listen and to come and, and see what people in the south are doing. But it's a more friendly and more open and a more uh, it's an easier space to get into. So um, I would encourage um, also junior scholars in local contexts, in their own countries, maybe in their own regions, To start building those sort of networks, building communities, um, supporting each other, um, and and in that way, building a critical mass uh, that can help engage uh, global scholarship. But it's really important, I think. And it's not only important for scholars from the global south, and that's the point that I'm always trying to make. Um, This is not about charity or even social justice, it's not about inclusion and, and diversity. It's about really doing better scholarship. I mean, you cannot, if you sit in, the North, in North America or Europe, claim to know um, everything there is to know about how communication ethics works if you don't know what the context is in, in Asia or in Africa or in Latin America or the Middle East. Um, so it is important for the field that, that these sort of conversations happen. Um, so it's, it's worth pursuing.
2: Yeah, I totally agree with you. Uh, I think that's a wonderful kind of concluding note that if you want to be, you know, intellectually, intellectually rigorous, uh, this is not about charity, this is about, you know, if you're sitting in the global north, you should, you better know about what's happening in the global south. If you really want to understand social phenomena uh, and not only concentrate on what's happening in the global north. Thank you so much, Professor Wasserman for this wonderful conversation. Thank
1: you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to our Global Media and Communication podcast.
2: If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to our email, cargc at asc.upen.edu, or follow us on Twitter. Until next time.